don't know about you, but I'm glad I came to church today. Yeah. Beats staying at home watching the idiot box, doesn't it? All right, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. We're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through verse 6 together. While the choir and the orchestra come down, we're going to read from the passage. We're going to conclude our study, uh, the power of one today, with this passage. where We're going to talk about one God who brings us together as a family. Because we have one God, we are one church. We have one Lord. We have one faith. And it is that one God that brings us together in our uniqueness as one body, one family, one church. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, be, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in us all. That's the passage we're going to look at together today. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to be able to come together as one family, one church, one body in this one place to enjoy your presence among your people. You are here because you promised where two or three are gathered that you would be there. And the reason why you're where two or three are gathered is because you reside within our hearts. And when we come to this place, we bring you with us. So thank you for being here. Thank you for residing in us. Thank you for using this time to allow us to come boldly before your throne of grace, to know that we're accepted, to know that what we bring is acceptable to you. And may the instruments that were played and the songs that were sung honor and glorify you and you alone today as we seek to acknowledge you in the elevated position that is yours as sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. So God, at this time, as we open your word, may your Holy Spirit permeate this place. May he penetrate the darkness that's there. May he open and illuminate our hearts and our minds with the mysteries of the gospel of Christ so that we might leave this place this morning fully engaged and equipped for the battle that's out there. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. Use it to honor and glorify you and to build up your church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Let me ask you something. I Googled it the other day. Actually, yesterday, as a matter of fact, I had an idea. I wanted to know how many gods are there. So I asked the computer, the worldwide internet, the web, I asked the question, how many gods exist? What do you think is the answer to that? Any guesses? There, there, there was no, no one sought to define how many gods exist. Uh, there are many who sought to explain the, that, that there is a God and that who that God was or who that God wasn't and how many gods there may be or not be, but it's, it's virtually impossible for us to identify how many gods exist in our world just today. And the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to a church that was saved from a, a culture and a community that had and believed in multiple gods. And undoubtedly, some of the people that placed their faith and trust in Christ and became a part of the body, the one body of Christ, the church at Ephesus that Paul is writing to, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, came from a culture and a background in which they practiced multiple gods. And while it's true, I think, that there are multiple gods in our world today, many, while defined, are also undefined. For example, there is not only the God of, let's say, Buddha, but there's also the God of television. There's the God of money. 
There's a God of power. And so in essence, for us to sit down and try to define how many gods exist, there would be an infinite number of how many gods actually exist in the world today. And more than likely, there are many gods that are seeking to be the God in your life at this present moment in your life. For there are many influences of the flesh and of the world that are constantly bombarding us, seeking to make them our gods over the one and the only true God, which is Jehovah, Elohim, or God. And so I want us to take a look at this incredible passage because it is here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit where God leads the Apostle Paul to challenge this church to become one. You see, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we're not quite sure if they were a divided church, but they were a diverse church. And in spite of the diversity, what God is doing here in this letter to this church as well as to us today, he's saying to us that in spite of our diversity, we can still be one in Christ and celebrate the diversity that is here among us. And so in in trying to sort of define what unity is, he goes now to the subject called the subject of God. And he defines succinctly in this very small passage some incredible aspects about God himself. This is a very heavy theological little packed verse that defines God in a few words in an incredible way. And he's trying to define God in this way to help them understand that if God being who he is in his nature and his character and his persona, can be one, then we who worship him should also be one. And so I want to take a look at the text, and I want us to go together, and I want us to take a look at five basic characteristics of the definition or the quality of God. So let's take a look at the text. Number one, as we see it, we see that God, number one, is above all. In other words, he is the one and only true God. He is the only God. And passage after passage after passage in the Old and the New Testament, we learn that any other God other than Jehovah God is in fact a man-made God. He is a false God, for there's only one God, and this one God is the one and only Jehovah God, the God that is the Father of Jesus. He is the one God. He's defined in the Bible as the one God. And we look at the text, and we see in the passage, beginning with verse 6, he says, one God. Now, we have identified and we define the word one for several times now in this passage, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one body. We define one as a singular aspect of what is about to be described. In other words, whatever follows this word one is a singular aspect of what is about to be described. In other words, there is no other. And so basically he's saying here that this is the one and only God. Now, the word God here is theos. It's in the Greek, and it is not what we would normally think of Jehovah, but it is written sort of in the theos, which means a divine supreme being. And so what he's saying here is that Jehovah, our Elohim, is the one divine supreme, everlasting, all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, the one and only God himself. And so he defines God as one God. Now, why does he do that as he's seeking to help these people understand that they are one in Christ? Well, I think it's because he's trying to refer to the fact that one God, as we know, most of us do, in our theological study, if you've taken the course that's that's about to re-kick back up again tonight at uh, 5.30 up on the third floor, the theology class, you discussed it last semester, I believe, that God being three persons is one God. He is three 
diverse and distinct people, yet he is one God. We do not worship, nor do we serve three gods. We serve and we worship only one God. And the Bible calls him God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So while we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, it is not three gods, but it is three gods in one person, in the person of God. And what he's trying to define in this text here is the simple reality. Notice in verse 4, one Lord, one faith, one God, one spirit. If you look at the text there, he talks about one Lord, one spirit, one God. He's re referencing, I think, the triune Trinitarian God that we have and believe in as one God. So basically what he's suggesting here is this, that even though there are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are diverse and equal in and of themselves, are yet one God. So if God having three distinct personalities can be one God, then all of us who have distinct personalities in and of ourselves, while we may share some characteristics with the others, can still be one without losing our diversity. So I think one of the main causes that, that we have in not wanting to be unified with others and to be one with others is that we may have this sort of distorted view that if I become one with you, then what happens to my distinct and diverse personality? I mean, after all, I am fearfully, wonderfully made, and I like pretty much who I am. There's some things about me I might change. But if I join with you and we become one, then therefore I no longer am me. That's not true. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, while they are three, are one. And God the Father has a distinct personality. God the Son has a distinct personality. God the Spirit also has a distinct personality because the Spirit is also equal to the Father and the Son. And the three, while three are one. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, we see, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. If you notice in the text here, he's referencing the fact he's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles who are part of this church to become one. And I believe in this church there might have been some hesitancy on the part of some or a few because they believe if I become one with you, what about me? And he's saying to them, because God is three, yet one, you can be many, still diverse, still distinctly of yourself, but still one. Ephesians 3, 6 says, the mystery of the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I mean, let's just fake it, face it, you're pretty diverse, aren't you? You're pretty unique, aren't you? I mean, let's just do a little exercise here. Look at the person to your left or to your right. Go ahead, take a long look at them. Try not to laugh. Okay, they have two ears like you have. Hopefully you have two ears. They have a nose. Unless you have leprosy, you, you still have a nose. You have a mouth. You have hair. Well, some of us have hair and some of us have less hair. Uh, some of us are tall. Some of us are short. And, and even though we kind of, kind of look like each other, we're unique. We're diverse. We have distinct characteristics and aspects about ourselves that, that, that maybe we appreciate and, and maybe we don't. Maybe those next to us appreciate and maybe there's some things about us that they don't quite appreciate and, let, and maybe wish that, that, that those things would change. 
the reality is that when you become one in the Lord, you don't lose that diversity. You don't lose that, that distinctive quality of being uniquely you. Well, the Bible says when a husband marries a wife, they become one flesh. They become one person. And as one person, they are two unique, distinct, separate people, yet they are one. And the Bible says this is a mystery. It's, it's hard for us to conceptualize that today in our tangible world, in our world of, of concreteness, because we have a tendency to think of things in, in a concrete form, but God is not as concrete. He is spiritual like us, and he is supernatural, and as a result of that, it's not unthinkable for us to look at the biblical theological perspective, although the Bible doesn't systematically give us this little neat package of God the Father, Son, and the Spirit is one, it over and over and over again, putting it together, the pieces of the puzzle together in the Bible, help us understand that while God is three, he is one, so therefore he is God overall, and because three become one, we can become one if we are to become like him. So God is above all. Second, we see that God is Father of all. Notice he describes God as father of all. In other words, he is the one and only father of all. He is not only the one and only God, but he is the one and only father of all. He is not only the only God, but he is father of all. And it's interesting to take a look at this passage when you sort of look at the word father. It's capitalized here for you on, on the screen. And he is father because I believe that any, any word that seeks to describe God himself should be capitalized because he is who he is. He is God. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is king. And so we should capitalize, I like to, everything that references him. And he is described here is here in the words, he is the one and only father. What does he mean by father? Anybody here not have a father? We all have fathers. Now, it really kind of torques me a little bit when, when there are football games and all that, and they're zeroing in on the football player, and he realizes that, and he waves, and what does he say? Hi, Mom. And I was like, what about Dad? What about the father? You know, and I know, Moms, you carry the child for hopefully no longer than nine months, and uh, I know that you birthed the child, but without a father, there would be no child. And what he's saying by father here is he's saying that God is not only the author, but God is the initiator of all of life and the sustainer of life. Fathers initiate and they support or they sustain the life of their family. That's what the Bible says we're called to do. And God is the supreme father. Notice he said the, the author and the initiator and the sustainer of life, but he is the father of all. He is the father of everything. It is all-encompassing, meaning that there are no boundaries to what he's saying here. He is the father of everything and everyone. Well, what does that mean? As we scratch our head and trying to figure out what does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you what it means. First of all, God is Father in generation, meaning as the creator. Notice, as the creator. God is the Father in that he is the creator of all things. He not only is the author of life, not only the initiator of life, but the sustainer of all that is life, all that is living. Notice in the passage it says in Ephesians 5.20, Give me thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church, give thanksgiving to God for what? What's the word? Everything. Why? Because everything that exists is because God created it. 
And because he is the creator of everything, we then give thanks to God for everything. Not for only the things that I like, but also the things that I don't like. Celery is something I don't like. It's called a weed that they call a vegetable that they put on your plate and you try to, you know, camouflage it with some other kind of goodies to make it taste good, but it's still a weed. But we're to give thanks for those kinds of things, for everything. Notice that the passage says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. Notice in Matthew 8.19.4, Jesus himself said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I have a contention with that. God should have made us a little more similar so that we're a little more compatible, but God made men the way that he did and women the way they did so that two opposites can attract and there can be electricity. Acts 17.25 said, and he, God, made, ma- made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Who is the creator of everything? God. And so we don't have a problem with that, most of us, but some of us sort of scratch our head and say, wait a minute, is God the initiator, the author, and the creator of everything? Yes. You see, he is, number one, by a direct way. In this direct way, God is directly responsible for everything that you and I enjoy in life. He is directly responsible for it all. God could hold his hand out and say, let there be a pigeon in my hand, and out of nothing a pigeon would be formed. That's the kind of God that he is. He can create something out of nothingness. He has that kind of ability as the creator genius that he is. Not only as a creator in which he is directly revolved and responsible for everything, but we notice also that he is indirectly resolved, uh, involved in everything that exists, indirectly and directly. Indirectly meaning that, well, some of us will say, well, I'm the one that did that. I made that car. I made that cake. I made that supper. So God didn't really make that, or did he? God made the ingredients that you're using to make the thing that you're making. God made you uniquely who you are with the talents and the abilities and the giftedness that you have in order to then give you the wisdom and the insight and the ability to make that which has happened. So therefore, God is, in fact, not only the author, but he is the the giver of all that we enjoy in life. And so God is basically directly and indirectly responsible for everything as the creator. But God, the Father, is also, notice, the Father by regeneration, meaning as Savior. There's an aspect in which he is, like Jesus, our Savior. He is the one that is the author and the initiator of our salvation. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. God is the author and the initiator of his only son, bringing him down to this planet in order so that he might die for sins that he didn't commit, so that we could, through faith in him, have a relationship with the Father. God is the creator. He is the initiator of our regeneration, of our rebirth. Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. We have these beautiful, this beautiful passage and I think we may have read this already about the gospel truths that help us understand the responsibility that God has in our salvation. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice God's part in our salvation. It says beautifully in this text, 
We are saved because of God's favor. God has blessed us in this text with every spiritual blessing that comes to us through faith in Christ. Every blessing that we have that comes to us through faith in Christ is because of his blessing, his favor upon us. God initiated that. God is the author of that. If you take a look at the text, he also chose us before we chose him. And he chose us to be blameless. He chose us to be holy. He chose us to be righteous. Look at the text. He also adopted us. We are now his children, and he is the one who initiated this adoption process. We were like lost little orphans in an orphanage without hope, without, without expectancy to live very long, and he initiated this adoption process through Christ. Notice he redeemed us. How did he redeem us? By grace through faith, and that it is not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. But he also then is the one who gave us the inheritance that we have, that because of our faith and trust in Christ, And we now have a beautiful inheritance that is not only present, but it's future. I think sometimes we have a tendency to just look to Jesus as the one solely responsible for our salvation. But I think we need to encompass it all and recognize and realize that salvation is a work of the triune God, not just Christ. For God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all have an integral, vital part in our salvation, and should all three equally be thanked and recognized for their position. Romans 8.15, which is not on your screen, says that we, as adopted as sons, can call him what? Abba, Father. We can call him Abba, Father. We can call him our daddy. Why? Because we have been adopted now. We are sons and daughters with Christ, and God now is our Father. If you take a look at the passages of Christ time and time again in which he references his relationship with the Father, not one time does he say, we, but over and over and over again, he says, my Father, my Father, over and over and over again. He always talks about, he says, my Father. You know what? We've been adopted into the family. Through faith in Christ. And he is now, through that adoption, my father. And I can reference him and I can call him and I can refer to him as my heavenly father. Why? Because I have been adopted and I am now his child and he is my father and I am his son. And as a result of that intricate relationship that I have now through faith in Christ, I now can enter boldly into the very throne room of God and bow at his knees and call him my father and my God. And it's great to know that he can be that intimate and that loving and that personal with us. The God of all the universe, who reigns and rules on a throne, who has all power, all wisdom, who is ever-present, who has all these wonderful attributes, him and all of his glory and all of his splendor, we can come up to him and say, hey, Dad. Hey, Father. Hey, Abba. You know what he says? What you got on your heart today? What's on your plate? What have you been thinking about? It's as if he didn't know. He already does. He wants us to talk to him and relate to him in a personal, intimate love relationship that's brought about through faith in Christ. Don't do it it without respect. Do it very reverently. Um, Understanding and knowing who he is. But come boldly to the throne of grace and call him my father. But that's what he is. 
So not only is he father of those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior and our Lord, but notice God is also overall. There are three things that he says here that are sort of strikingly almost similar, but they're very distinct and very different. And notice that, first of all, he says God is overall, God is through all, and God is in all. We're going to look at that God is overall. Did you know that God, being the God that he is, the Elohim, the Jehovah that he is, sovereignly sitting on his throne, he is Lord over all. Notice it says in the passage, who is the one and only, he is over all, meaning that he is sovereign Lord, meaning that he is reigning, meaning that he is ruling, meaning that he is on his throne, he is sitting at the bench, and that nothing happens without him causing it to happen. He is sovereign Lord over all. His, his le- leadership and lordship and his reign is, is all-encompassing. There are no boundaries, there are no limits to his reign and his rule and what he is controlling. I mean, you and I can, can barely control ourselves, much less other people. You know, one, of the, one day I, I called this one of my, my growth spurts in, in my spiritual life. And maybe you've gotten there, maybe you haven't. When you wake up one day and you realize you're not in control of anything, you ever reach that plateau spiritually? You wake up one day on your knees in prayer and you recognize and realize you're not in control of nothing. You just somehow presuppose and imagine that you were in control of your life, of your marriage, of your children, of your future, and even of your church. But then you recognize and realize, I'm not in control of anything. Because there's nothing that we can make happen independently and apart from God. For it is God, as we're going to see in a minute, who is through all. But God is sovereign over all. Notice in Ephesians 1.11, notice what he says. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means God's will supersedes your will and my will, even our will. Psalms 135.6 says, whatever the Lord pleases... He does. No one can stop him. No one can stand in his way. No one can prevent what God purposes and what God wills. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now to him, notice, who is able to do what? Far more than you could ever imagine, much less even ask for. Now you and I have a pretty vivid imagination. We can imagine a lot of things that we suppose that God could do, but even in our wildest imagination, and we were to come to to God and to bow before him and lay this wild imagination of things that we think that he could do, God said, I can do far more than that, far more than you could ever imagine, far more than you could ever ask. I am greater than that. I can do all of those things. And you go back to the text and you see that, first of all, he has an eternal purpose. He has an eternal purpose. He has infinite wisdom. And based upon that infinite wisdom, he has a sovereign will. A will that is going to be accomplished to fulfill the purpose that he has. So we see in this text that as believers, we can turn to God. And as we turn to God, we have no worries about our present nor about our future. I'm tired of hearing about Obamacare. I just turn the news off. 
blah, 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 blah. And the government this and the government that and people this and people that. And, you know, I just look at it and say, you know, God's in charge of all this, man. Stop your worrying. God, God, God has infinite wisdom. And, and God has an eternal purpose. And in his infinite wisdom, he is going to work all things for good who, who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And he is in the process through that sovereign will and through accomplishing what he wills to do. Nothing and no one can stand in his way. No government, no power, no enemy, no army, no nobody, not even the devil himself to prevent the, the work of God from being fully done. So, man, I just, I just walk up and say, hey, Daddy, here. You're sovereign Lord. Now, it doesn't abdicate me from responsibility, or another way to put it, it doesn't mean I'm not responsible for yielding to him the leadership and the control of my life and my circumstances. But there's some aspect about that that he's not even dependent upon me. Because if I get in his way, get out of my way, son. I'm going to make this happen. Notice it says then that he is not only the one and only overall, he is the one and only through all. <laughs> I scratched my head about this. You know how many commentators just skip this? <laughs> Are they trying to combine this one with the next one? And uh, I really had to do a word study here and do some real digging, and it took me several hours to figure this out, but it was so simple that I just almost wanted to take a hammer and hit my head over the head because it was that easy. It simply means that God, who is overall, is, is accomplishing his will through all. In other words, if God wants the grass to grow, it's going to grow. How does it grow? Through him. If God wants a tree to go, grow, it's not fertilizer that's going to make it grow. It's God who's going to make it grow through him. God, through, through him, the tree grows. Through him, the grass grows. Through him, the, the beautiful day we have today is, is enjoyed by us. It's through him. Anything you do is because God does it through you. You don't do it. So therefore, you can't take the credit for it. Salvation is not by works, he said, lest any one of us should boast. So not only is our salvation nothing we can boast about because we have nothing to bring to the table. We're penniless, we're empty, we're, we're poor, we're wretched, we're lost, we're condemned. It's Christ who did it all for us on the cross. When we come and we offer our service to him and something gets accomplished and achieved, it is God who does it through us. How do you get that? Well, notice it said in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, what? Workmanship. We are his workmanship. The, the word workmanship is an interesting word. It means that God is working in us and through us to accomplish those good things that he predestined and, 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 and wants to do through us. It is he who is doing it through us. God has a sovereign will. And he has a will and he has, he has eternal wisdom. And in his eternal wisdom and his sovereign will, he is accomplishing then his purpose for those of us who will yield to his lordship and his leadership. And he does it through us. Ephesians 4.10 said, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And as he fills us, he does it through us. Ephesians 1 9 and 10. Well, how does this relate to all of what we're talking about? Notice what it says, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
Mystery not meaning that, that we can't ever know it, but mystery meaning that it's not known to us, and so now God is revealing to us what we need to know. Okay, That's what it means by mystery here. Notice what it says, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is saying to the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, to the church at Ephesus and to us today, that from the very foundation of time, it has always been God's eternal purpose to make Jew and Gentile one in Christ. Always. You know, the Jew was kind of a little bit cocky a little bit, you know. I'm, I'm a descendant of Abraham, descendant of the promise, you know. And when salvation came to the Jew first, to Israel first, there were some who were a little bit, hey, it's only for the Jew. It's only for the Israel. It's only for those of us who, who, are, who are descendants of Abraham. And, and so they were walking around feeling a little bit cocky and a little bit, and, and through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul and the Spirit, of the Spirit, the Lord is saying to this church, uh-uh, uh-uh. Salvation's for everybody. Not just for the Jew, but it's also for the Gentile. Aren't you glad? How many Jews do we have in here today? Any Jews here? You know what? If God didn't do that from the foundation of time, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be saved. And, and all the promises that God gave Abraham are now ours to claim. And we have a position that is equally that of the Israelite, equal to that of the Jew, for we call him now our father. And we are now his children. That's what he's saying. He's saying in the eternal plan of God, in his infinite wisdom, from the very foundation of time, his sovereign will is being affected. And now, you didn't know it then, but let me, let me, let me give you some insight here, guys. Don't be stubborn. Let me, we're all one in Christ, he's saying. In other words, God's been working from the very foundation of time to bring this to pass. There's a passage in John chapter 5, which many of you are familiar with, if, you're doing, if you've ever done Experiencing God. And by the way, uh, one of our, our chairman of deacons, David, is doing a, an individual study tonight at 5.30. If you have never done Experiencing God, you need to do it. If you've done it a long time ago or recently, I encourage you to go with David through this study. It's at uh, 5.30 up on the third floor. Uh, it'll change your perspective. It'll change your life. It did mine. And, uh, it, it, and in this passage, I think he's saying here in John chapter 5, that this very thing that Jesus said. Um, uh, there was a guy in a, in a pool. Uh, it's a sheep gate uh, there in Jerusalem uh, where he was sort of being... He was a pool in Bethesda near Jerusalem. Let me, let me get my thought here. At the, at the sheep's gate, he had been lying there for, what, 38 or 39 years? They believed that when the Spirit stirred the waters, the first one in the waters would be healed. But because he'd been there so long and he had so much stuff accumulated, he didn't have any help. When the water was stirred, someone always beat him there. And for, here, for 38, 39 years, this guy had been there for a long time. And Jesus walks by and he looks at him and said, hey, dude, do you want to be healed? And the guy said, of course I do. And he looks at him and then arise, take up your bed and walk. And miraculously the guy is healed and he stands up and he takes up at his bed and he walks. The only problem is it's the Sabbath. 
And the religious elite are all upset because Jesus is working on the Sabbath and this guy is carrying his mat on the Sabbath and the guy didn't even know that it was Jesus and begins to do what he was told to do because he was healed. Then they ask him some questions he doesn't know and then later on he finds out it's a crisis. So they go to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, why are you healing on the Sabbath? And notice what he says in John 5, 17. But Jesus said to them, my father is working until now and I am working. So when has God ever ceased to work through us. When? When has God ever ceased to work? What's the answer? Come on, church. Never. God never ceases working. He is always at work. And because God is always at work, Christ was always at work, and Jesus says himself, all I do is go around watching what God is doing, and then I join what God is doing, then God works through me. That's what Jesus said in John 5. What was Jesus' power source? It was God working through Jesus. Jesus never initiated anything in and of himself, independent of God. He walked around seeing where God was at work, and when he recognized God was at work, he simply stepped into what God was doing, and then God worked through him to accomplish the miraculous things that, were, that he was doing. That's revolutionary when you think about it and you begin to apply it in your own life. Because too many times you and I think that it's in my strength and my power and my effort that I have to make it happen. No, there is an aspect of responsibility that I need to yield and live a faithful life and yield committed faithfulness to him. I don't want to negate that. But even when I yield to him, it is him who does it in and through me as well as through you. It is God who does it through us. And therefore, it is God who gets the glory for that. So our response in God, the one and only through all, is Lord, do it in and through me. And then lastly, God is in all. He is not only over all, he is not through all, but God is in all. Interesting passage here. It says that he is he who is in all. He is the one and only in all. Now, I just want to, very quickly, I don't have a lot of time, but if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. If you take a look at the passage, Ephesians 2.22, it says, In him, in him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What are you? You are a dwelling place. You are the temple of not only the Spirit of God, but Christ the Son of God, and also God the Father. For it would be inconceivable for us to say the Spirit of God dwells in me, but Christ doesn't dwell in me, because you find in several passages in the New Testament where it says, Christ in me is the hope of glory. Where Christ said he's going to put his Spirit in us. So the reality is, if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one, if I have the Spirit dwelling in me, who also do I have in me? God and Christ, as well as the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with inner power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with 
all of the fullness of who? Of God. To be filled into the fullness of God. And he talks about the fact that we are his dwelling place. In the New Testament, we find that when Christ died, the veil was torn in two. And the Shekinah presence of God left that dwelling place that he called his dwelling place in the Holy of Holies. And now through faith in Christ, the moment we place our faith and trust in him, we become his tabernacle. We become his dwelling place. And there's a reason why he puts in us his spirit. There's a reason why God in us, in all of his fullness, makes an effect and has a difference in our life. Because it's through faith that Christ comes into our hearts, but he comes into our hearts to strengthen us. If you look at the passage, we need inner strength. Because you're weak and you're frail and you're human and, and you fall and you stumble. You lack wisdom. Notice there it's also, he says, to be strengthened with the, in the inner man. He said to be filled with God. He said so that we might overcome then the strongholds of the enemy. And there's, a, there's an interesting reality here in which we come to terms with in the God of all universe through his son and through his spirit who dwells within our hearts. It's kind of like a little fellow who went to the doctor and uh, he was not feeling too good. And uh, the doctor was examining him, and upon every examination, he would ask, what's that? What's that? What you doing? What you doing? And finally, the doctor put the stethoscope on his heart, and he said, Doc, what you doing? He said, well, son, he said, I'm, I'm listening to your heart. He said, what are you listening for in my heart? He said, I'm listening to see if Superman's in your heart. And the little boy sat up, and he said, Doc, Superman's on my underwear. Jesus is in my heart. Christ lives in your heart. The Spirit of God resides in your heart. And there's a reason why God, all of God, dwells in you. You are his tabernacle. You are his dwelling place. You are his temple. And because you are that place, it behooves us to understand the complexities as well as the, the privilege that that is. So that he then can fulfill his purposes and his divine plan through us. God is the one and only God. He is Father of all. He is over all. He is through all. And he is in all. So having said that, here's what I want us to conclude. Because God is here, because God is speaking, what's my decision today? Because our response to him is so critical that at this very moment it can make the difference between life and death so what is your decision today let's pray
baptism. So let me just draw your attention to the baptistry, and uh, we're going to join them today in celebrating the new life that was birthed through the ministers of our church. So, Brother Gail, take it away. Again, this morning we have the privilege of beginning our worship time with the ordinance of baptism. This is Madeline, and I know Madeline has some family and friends here with her this morning to celebrate in her being obedient to God's activity. So if you're part of Madeline's family or life group, would you stand so that we could honor you all? <laughs> Madeline, let me ask you this. Have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire to follow him and be an example of what it means to be a Christ follower from this day forward? Yes. Because of that decision this morning, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. 